Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Nato Green is perhaps the most activist comedian I know, and I know more than a few comedian activists. Green lives and breathes San Francisco, not only as a comedian, but also as a union organizer, husband, father of twin daughters, columnist for the San Francisco Examiner, and host of a regular segment on Bay Area comedy that airs on the local NPR station, KALW. He also is the creator of Iron Comic, a fun comedy game show spoofing Iron Chef, which he usually co-hosts with Moshe Kasher. Nato Green released his first comedy album via San Francisco-based Rooftop Comedy in 2012. The same year, he moved to New York City to write for FX's Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. All things considered, Nato Green moved back home to San Francisco, where he hosted me during the 2016 Sketchfest and shared his life and perspective with me. So let's get to it! How are the levels? The levels are great. Thank you for... I mean, we're in your, your beautiful, historic San Francisco home, Nato Green. Yes, we are. The, my house was... I think this is, was originally an earthquake cottage after the 1906 quake. So it dates back to immediately after the earthquake. What is an earthquake cottage? Well, like this... There was... In 1906, this was not a neighborhood. Uh, most people lived where downtown is now. Mm-hmm. And this was mostly, like, pretty open. And so... After the fires, they built these cottages out here to house people who, like, had been displaced by the fires. Okay. And so uh, the back part of the house goes back, you know, like, originally that was the front door. And then, that was not great on podcast. And that was the front door, the thing that I'm pointing <laughs> at that you can see with your eyes. Yeah. Um, and then Picture, this, if you will, a door. That I'm pointing at. That's not the front door. And then, and then where we're sitting right now, mm-hmm. which is the actual front of the house, was added on at some point later. For FEMA housing, this is pretty great. Yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> I think this is probably pre-FEMA. Pre-FEMA. Um, when did you, when did you move in here? Uh, 2004. So we, like, you know, it was, it was during the insane, like we got the kind of sketchy mortgage that crashed the economy. As depicted in the award-winning film, The Big Short? Uh, pretty close, yeah. Like, we didn't get, um, we didn't get a, uh, we didn't have a subprime mortgage, mm-hmm. but we did have a, like, because we had good credit, we had a stated income mortgage where they didn't verify our income. <laughs> like, you're good. <laughs> that we, that we are like, oh, your credit score is high enough. If you tell us that what your income is, and, uh, and it was like a balloon deal, so mm-hmm. it was fixed for a few years, and then it was an adjustable rate, and so... Uh, basically, you know, like we, I mean, I talk, I've, I've talked about this a lot, like, uh, you know, I own housing in San Francisco and I'm now a landlord in San Francisco and I'm like, I was, being a landlord in San Francisco is the easiest job in the world. Like second only possibly to being the press secretary for the secret service where <laughs> all you have to say is that's classified. Um, so like the, uh, because we, we had a down payment that I had inherited. We bought, there's an apartment downstairs. We bought the house with the kind of mortgage we shouldn't have been allowed to get. The neighborhood appreciated massively because of nothing that had to do with me. <laughs> um, and then we refinanced into a low 30 year fixed rate mortgage. And then we have this rental income for the rest of my life. It's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's like being a drug dealer in the eighties. Like people are just <laughs> handing me bags of cat, you know. Which, which is, you know, the typical stand-up comedian story is you buy a house and become a landlord. You buy a house and become a landlord and use that to fund your comedy dreams. No, I, well, I mean, I'm like, uh, I'm not a particularly, like, in capitalist terms, I'm not a good landlord because, like, occasionally people who want to try to fuck with me on Twitter are like, you know, you have a great, how much rent do you charge? How mm-hmm. do you decide, you know, how close to market rate to get? And I was like, well, I'll be honest, I don't really think about market rate. I think about how much money I need to make to live. And then I charge, like, you know, like our, 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 we, we don't, my income is not all the rental income. I have other sources of income, but like I have friends who live downstairs. So we charge half of market rate because classic socialist. I know. Cause I would rather be able to be live around cool people than, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> now what, what was your comedy career like in 2004 when you 
bought a house in San Francisco. What did you think your career was going to be? Uh, 2004 was right before I started. Oh. Uh, I mean, like, I think we were, we were talking about this yesterday. I got on stage a few times in the late 90s at the County Underground in Seattle. Was not confident enough in myself to do it, like, mm-hmm. to deal with that thing of, like, having to be horrible for a while before you get good. Um, and so was like, oh, well, this is, you know, like, because I, you know, I grew up in San Francisco during the comedy boom when, you know, like, I got to see Margaret Cho go from being opener to headliner. You know, and Greg Proops and like all the people who came out of San Francisco in the eighties and early nineties, I got to see them, you know, in the clubs and had a front row seat to all that. And so it was just around. I was like, oh, this. And we, there used to be when I was a kid, there were five full time comedy clubs in the city limits. And I know living in New York, that doesn't sound like a lot, but for a city this size, it's kind of a lot. No, San Francisco has had a vibrant comedy scene. Yeah. Since the beginning. Since of the beginning of stand-up comedy. comedy proper. Uh, so I like set it aside and then spent my 20s as a union organizer. And at, uh, and then 10 years ago, like was, you know, uh, between gigs and like was unhappy and frustrated and like was like, yeah, let me go get this out of my system. And then I went down to the open mic and I got the bug. And, you know, quickly immerse myself in the comedy scene and, you know, like, uh, and, you know, partly because of my, like, having grown up here and, uh, I also cheated because of having grown up here and having been an organizer, like the stuff about producing your own shows Mm -hmm. really came easily to me. And so, and like getting publicity and stuff. And so within six or eight months of starting, I was on the cover of the newspaper. Oh, wow. And and selling out the makeout room and the mission. And so, like, producing my own shows that, like, became a thing. I, it was Iron Comic. Uh, Iron Comic is the show that you do with Moshe Kasher. Yeah. Usually. I, I have been doing it with Moshe Kasher. I used to do it on my own. Okay. And occasionally still do, but mostly these days I, I've been doing it with him. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And so, I, it was just... I. Wanted to do a comedy Iron Chef, and I started doing it at the makeout room, and it became a thing really quickly. And like that, you know, having like that early experience of some success, uh, and people being, you know, it sort of I think bought me time to figure out how to be a good comic. Which which came first for you, being politically aware, or being comedically aware? Um, the it's the it's it's all the same. Do you know what I mean? Like, um. You know, it's all one soup. Like, you know, my, you know, I have that, like, Jewish lefty family that thinks mm-hmm. that humor is, you know, more important than, that jokes are more important than Israel is sort of my particular family tradition. <laughs> like, uh, and, you know, the, um, and so, you know, I, had to study like Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce for my bar mitzvah preparation, you know, and seriously. Yeah. Uh, and, um, I should have gone to that bar mitzvah. Uh, it, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, when I was, when I was in junior high, my grandfather in Chicago, um, every week would set, would collect political cartoons and send them to me in a packet. And then we would get on the phone and discuss them. And so, uh, and he, like after he retired, he started doing this as a program in his neighborhood, school and you know it got him on cnn and stuff eventually but like it meant that my i never had an experience of paying attention to the news not through the lens of jokes oh wow um and like deconstructing both the jokes and the subject matter of the political cartoons which tend not you know political cartoons tend not to be like they tend not to kill in the ways that stand-ups are used to thinking about killing but just that whole approach was like so, you know, I was the only, whatever, seventh grader following the Robert Bork confirmation hearings because of the political cartoons that were coming out about it. So when you're doing that, what are you dreaming your adult life is going to be like when you're in seventh grade watching watching politics and looking at op-ed political cartoons and... Uh, I, well, I was assuming it was going to be politics. I mean, you know, like when I was in seventh grade, 
I remember so last night at the party, someone was trying to convince me to run for office. And uh, when, when I was 12, San Francisco Chronicle did a profile on me, ambitious SF youth has eyes on the White House. I, my grandma took me to D.C. I met Senator Alan Cranston. I told him I was going to be president. Um, uh, at some point, I lost interest in being president. But, you know, uh, like I knew, I mean, and then by the time I was 14, 15, I was getting into punk rock and thinking about different things. But Well, yeah, I don't see that art, that newspaper article framed here in your home. So it wasn't something. Uh, it's. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I'm mostly because I don't want the picture of the acid wash jeans and the Fila sweatshirt up on the wall. <laughs> this kid wants to be president. Yeah. <laughs> With his feathered hair. Um, so, but, uh, you know, it's, it's around somewhere. I can find it. It's in a box. Along with all your hopes and aspirations, are they in a box? Uh, no, no. The most, most of my hopes and aspirations are spread around the world. I mean, I don't, know if I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I'm going to point again. Uh, I don't know if you noticed outside the back window, mm -hmm. there are construction cranes. Um, I did see I did see a building being built. Being built. So, you know, that is probably my proudest professional accomplishment in my life, is what is there is a 100-year-old hospital that has for a hundred years primarily served the poor people of this neighborhood, this neighborhood that I have lived in my whole life. And 10 years ago, the evil giant hospital corporation wanted to close that hospital. And uh, uh, I, at the time, was working for the Nurses Union and helped build a community, labor community coalition that not only stopped them, but over the, you know, we held up a $2 billion development project in another neighborhood for the better part of a decade until they ultimately agreed to spend $250 million rebuilding the old hospital. So there are construction cranes outside of my window right now rebuilding a hospital for poor people in the neighborhood that I grew up in because of work that I did. It's like, it's, it's very satisfying. Yeah. And, what, what and, and now I'm going to go on stage and talk about my dick. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that, that struck me, even when I first met you when you were working for Kamal Vell's Totally Biased show. Yes, on FX. On FX. And, you know, I could tell you were a politically aware comedian, even perhaps an activist comedian. But what, what struck me about you, even from the beginning, is that you actually are active. Mm -hmm. A lot of political comedians talk the talk and they get the applause lines, but you're actually in the wild, in the field, doing the work, doing the legwork of trying to make your points become reality. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the things that I learned from working on a television show, which pulled me away from activism for a while, is that it, I, is that I can't not be an activist, um, and uh, and it you know and I feel like it changes. Um, you know, sometimes I talk about things that are in the news, and sometimes I feel like everything that I talk about has some kind of political lens because I'm that person. Do you know what I mean? I think of like, you know, I get I know that this is probably petty on my part, but I sort of bristle a little bit when people try to describe me as a political comedian because I think of that as like, you know, Mark Russell. Uh, uh, you know, that like, I'm not someone who sits there and watches meet the press every week mm -hmm. and then writes jokes about it. Um, or in San Francisco, uh, Will Durst is the local yeah, legendary political comedian. And he's great and has been a huge mentor and influence to me. But like, I'm, you know, I get my hands dirty more than he does. Um, and you know, and so like basically, I mean, the, at some point what I realize is that like, when most comedians talk about politics, they're watching the news and writing jokes about it. And frequently, they're better joke writers than I am. But ultimately, their relationship to the subject matter is the same as their relationship to, you know, uh, Mad Men. And when I write jokes about it, it's like it's always through from the perspective, of, you know, of it's even whether it's I tell I'm telling the story or not, it's always informed my, by my actual experience doing in being involved. Um, and I'm always looking for opportunities to fuse them. Like, you know, the other night, 
uh, I opened for Hari at the chapel, Hari Kondabalu, and uh, and after the show, some guy came up to me and was like, aren't you Nato Green? And I said, yes, I am. And he's like, aren't you the Nato Green who did public comment against evictions at City Hall during that hearing? Um, <laughs> and a couple times I've done, like, I've done public comment on some political issue in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and I've shown up at the hearing and gone up during public comment, and it's broadcast on the TV. The TV has a TV station on cable where they air all of their hearings, and you, it's an open mic. You get two minutes to do whatever you want. As long as you don't run the light, and so I, I, and I made my arguments with jokes, mm -hmm. and people pay attention to them a different way. Um, when was the first time you did that? It was a couple of years ago. Uh, um, like I didn't totally plan it out, um, but there was a there was there's a independent theater here in the mission called the Marsh that has like incubated a lot of like solo show kind of things, and the um, and the there was like a, like a condo development going in next door. Okay. And the Marsh was worried about the effects of the condo development on, you know, like uh, on their ability to run the theater and they wanted some stuff. And so they put out a call for support. And so there was this hearing about the approvals for the, for the project and, um, and they put out a call for artists and artists showed up in, in force in support of the theater. And like, you know, and everybody had these like very earnest, compelling, statements about what the theater meant to them and i had jokes that made the point and one of the supervisors told me that my jokes flipped their vote oh uh, wow and um, uh, that is the power of comedy to and, change the hearts and minds well and i mean so then i did it again on another there was another there was like some legislation in introduced to make it harder to evict people in san francisco and that time I like did it as a, in a more sort of thought deliberate way mm -hmm. where I brought six other comics to go uh, and do public comment. They have to take public comment. They can't stop the hearing and do the vote until public comment ends. Um, and I worked with the staff of the supervisor sponsoring the hearing. We decided that we would go last. So the comics and I get there. We listen to the hearing. So we're hearing what the other side is saying during, the com during their public comment and like the arguments that people are making. And then we like they're like, and that's the end of public comment. And the chair, and then we all ran up, and we're like, hey, one more, you know. <laughs> um, and so then we did six more bits, of, you know, uh, uh, statements, and partly responding to what people were saying. And we all had and we had jokes, and it worked on a lot of levels. Like the comics came out of there being like, this was really powerful for me, like to sit here in this hearing and watch the process in action and hear people talk about what it does for them to be evicted, like. I get it in a way that I don't clicking on some article and the politicians liked it because it was a break for them and the depressingness of the, you know, right. uh, it got pressed that the thing wasn't getting otherwise. And the activists loved it because partly because it was like cathartic for them, but partly because uh, it's much easier to make an argument when you have no need to be reasonable um, and, you know, and act like the other side has a valid point. So, like, as comedians, we can sort of explode the debate in a certain way. And, like, the activists were able to take things that we – jokes that we had made and sort of incorporate that into their messaging as they go talk to people about their issue. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's, the best example of that is, like, Chris Rock had that joke about, you know, minimum wage is your boss's way of saying I'd pay you less if I could. <laughs> um, and uh, – and, like – a lot of minimum wage activists around the country have put that joke in their materials. Um, and we did that in a small way on, on the eviction stuff. How does that compare to your, your earliest foray into comedy at the comedy underground in Seattle? It was horrible. Uh, uh, how did you end up there as a San Francisco? Okay. So I went to Reed college native. in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, one of my dear friends at Reed was, uh, the son of Carl Warmanhoven. Who was the assistant manager? The longtime beloved, ass man, the beloved assistant, ass assistant man manager of of, uh, of the of the underground. And his son, like had, having grown up around the comedy world, and me having grown up like absorbing, immersing San Francisco comedy. Like he was the first person I met. I mean, we were comedy nerds before that was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so for his twenty first birthday, we decided to go back to the underground. And like do a party and do an open mic and uh, and we were horrible. <laughs> uh, 
it, you know, we were like tr- trying to do like, you know, meta comedy kind of and like spoof the form at the time. Sure. You know, so, so that's still a popular thing. You still yeah. See so alt comics do. Oh, right. here, here's me being a mainstream comedian. So here's, uh, uh, the, the only, the only actual thing that was recognizable as a joke. You want to hear it? Sure. Uh, uh, I've been on a crime spree, breaking into cars across the country and stealing the club. <laughs> um, sure. It's, uh, but to make it like a meta thing, I had said, you know, someone just told me that in theater, you're supposed to, you're not supposed to deliver your jokes from behind the furniture, uh, like on, on the stage. Mm-hmm. You have to get in front of the furniture to deliver a joke. So I said, I want to test that theory. So I curled into a ball and lay down on the stage behind the stool mm-hmm. and then did the joke. And how, how was that received? It was the, probably the only laugh I got <laughs> <laughs> in that set. Yeah, physical comedy is, is timeless. Yeah. And it, and it, spans all languages. Yeah. It's the only timeless form of comedy. And also, I should mention that, uh, you know, here you've enjoyed a San Francisco burrito. This is Seattle in 1996, I think. Mm-hmm. There, that ha- ha- has, there are some places that are starting to advertise like mission style burritos elsewhere. And so I got one, but it was not well made and it was the closest I've ever gotten in my, in my life to literally shitting my pants. So I think I might have actually been crowning on stage when I was doing <laughs> that, those jokes. And that experience made you run from doing it again for a while or did you Nick did and I, you... Nick and I went up and did it there like two or three times mm-hmm. and they were all like you know complicated meta comedy bits um that were like overthought and underjoked did did Carl tell you and Nick that or did no. he give you any feedback no no he was like you know I mean occasionally he was like oh that's pretty you know that one thing was good <laughs> <laughs> um, uh you know, but I mean, has Carl ever been mean to anybody or shut anyone down? Uh, yes, but subtly so. You have to, you have to read between the lines. Right. Much like people will come up to me occasionally and comment on something I've written and go, Oh, I could tell you really didn't like that person. I go, Really? What makes you say that? Oh, just the tone yeah. in your story. I'm like, oh, interesting that you thought that. Okay. Yeah. Although I feel like I'm hypersensitive to that. Like, like I have this column in the San Francisco Examiner, and the other night I had a show, and after the show, somebody walking out said, "I love your columns," and I was like, "Are you saying you don't like my stand-up?" You know. <laughs> um, but uh, that's like, that's that's more classic insecurity. Yeah, maybe I'm overthinking it. Um, you, go, you said this, which means you didn't say the other thing. Right. So you hate me, is what you're saying. <laughs> you hate me except for my columns, is the conclusion I can draw. You would much rather read me than see or hear me. Um, yeah, so I did it a few times and then, like, stopped for, you know, almost almost a decade. But then, at, you know, while focusing on being an activist, occasionally, like, I would go and, like, give a talk at a conference about something about organizing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And notice that I was, like, really obsessing over the jokes in my talk. Um, uh Right, because you're still, it's still public speaking. Yeah. You're still in you know, front of an audience. And then, like, I hit the Wanting to win them over. Where, like, I was going to weddings every weekend. And so then I would, like, really work on my jokes and my wedding toasts. <laughs> and, uh, by the way, I fucking murder wedding toasts without <laughs> fail. Yeah. Um, uh, so. What was the tipping point that got you back on a, a comedy stage? Um,. So in my 20s, I'd built this, I started an organization called Young Workers United, um, and it was the country's first worker center for young and immigrant workers in the low-wage service sector. And Sexy. Sexy. And we were, like, organizing restaurant workers. We helped raise the minimum, the, like, the, we were involved in passing the first minimum wage in San Francisco, like, the, the uh, San Francisco has the highest local minimum wage. Uh, so that was in 2003. And then... In 2004 and 2005, like so many lefty organizations, we had a mess of infighting um, and like were, you know, at each other's throats internally and it was horrible. And uh, in the early, you know, in June of 2005, I like left and was, you know, miserable and felt like I had put my whole self into this thing. And I was, you know, it was sort of the 
the uh, a, a bottom, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you know, I, like I don't, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. So I was like, I've always loved comedy. Let me go to an open mic and get it out of my system. And where did you go for that? I went to the Brainwash, which is the cafe laundromat in South of Market that st- still is like the la- starting open mic for everybody. Okay. It's been running for 10 or 15 years. Um, and it was horrible also. Um, and, you know, I tried to just do like whatever jokes that people do. Um, and then two things happened uh, that changed it for me. One was uh, meeting other comedians and like, that being like being a comedian and being around comedians was the first time in my life that I didn't feel crazy. Um, and I was like, Oh, this it was like such a relief to be around comedians. Um, and then a month later, hurricane Katrina happened. Uh, and which is, sounds ridiculous so far. Um, well, and, we've already established that you're, an activist, yeah, union organizer, and so I was so upset by it that I like threw out all the jokes I had written mm-hmm. and then started writing jokes about that, and that was those were the first jokes that I did that got laughs, and I was like, oh, this is what I do. Like I'm not, I should. I, there's no point in me trying to do observational jokes. This is, this is what connects for me, and then I sort of, it, you know, came up from there. And then between there and 2012, did you just naturally fall in with? The crew of people who would end up becoming the t- totally biased writing staff, because a lot of that initial staff came from this San Francisco scene. Yeah, I mean, you know, my like my gang when I started. I mean, the, you know, the person who we knew was going to be the first famous person was Ali Wong. Uh, like we, Ali and I started the same month, and you know, uh, then a month later she was selling out theater, black box theaters in, oh, wow. in the neighborhood as a he- headlining herself, like. She had this level of focus and clarity about what she was doing from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, who, so who, in, in, of the totally biased crew, Janine came later, Janine Brito, Kevin Avery was around, Kevin and Kamau were roommates at one point, and Kamau and I became friends, and... You know, during the Bush years, there was this boom of political comedy, uh, and it was mostly, I mean, I felt people who, like, wanted, you know, were, like, liberal comics and wanted to make fun of Bush for being stupid and express their frustrations in the country. And then when Obama was elected, sort of everybody went away, and Kamau and I were like, you know... We're not done with you, America. (laughs) 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 Uh, You know... We still have to give you a dressing down. Right. Yeah, like, so Obama's elected, America's not... Fixed. Fucked up up anymore? Are you kidding Mm -hmm. me? So, uh, and, you know, and what we, like, we had this shared sense of um, that, you know, I I was, at the time, the first thing that I did was, like, a San Francisco franchise of Laughing Liberally from New York. Yeah. and I started it, you know, partly because Laughing Liberally wanted to franchise it and partly because Wilders wanted a workout room, basically. And, you know, did a bunch of these liberal political comedy shows and discovered that the people who were coming to something called the liberal political comedy show wanted to, they wanted applause lines. They wanted to hear things that they agreed with. And Kamau and I had a different vision about how we wanted to approach comedy, uh, which was like not, you know, more a more expansive version of what political meant than... You know, can you believe these Republicans? Um, and, and you know, and also like a more uh, intense point of view than, you know, than just saying things that people would agree with. So when you hear an applause break when you're on stage, what is that, what is that signal in your brain? Uh well, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not against applause line, <laughs> applause breaks. I'm very, I'm exceedingly concerned about the ratio of applause to laughter, and it's very, like, it's very important to me. And I work really hard in my own act, and you know, that to make sure that like my balance of like strident and funny is correct. You know, that like 
and that I'm not all like indicting everybody and ranting, but that there are, that, that it's not, you know, that it's not hostile or mean spirited or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, so, I mean, the thing that comes up for me a lot that I, that I always address on stage when it happens is like, I, you know, I'll doing the kinds of shows that I do. This just happened when I opened for Hari is like, I'll mention a topic that people in the audience, because they're, you know, politically minded people will have strong feelings about. And then the audience will react to like hiss that thing or boo, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll be like, guys, you don't need to tell like, what side do you think I'm on? I'm, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> is anyone really worried that suddenly after everything you have heard about me so far that I'm going to be like, you know, and deport them or what, you know, <laughs> uh, that's just not so. You were just telling me this weekend here at San Francisco Sketchfest, you had a joke about uber that resonated uh-huh um <laughs> yes uh, and, and, and lift and lift um i mean it leads you know it leads to interesting conversations like i uh you know i in san francisco you know the city is awash with tech money and it's become very politically controversial and i have found myself doing shows with a lot of tech people in the audience and like most of those people do not think that they're the devil and they're not trying to ruin people's lives they're, you know, they're trying to do their jobs. Um, and, you know, like I, uh, I did this show several months ago, uh, that, that Chris Duffy had put together and I like walked in to, and it was like, oh, this is all tech people. And I hate these people. Um, and I said as much and, you know, and did my like tech bashing material mm-hmm. and, but pulled it off in a way that they, embraced it and then a week later i'm at a protest against gentrification and some woman walks up to me and says i just saw you at this show and i'm a tech person and you shit all over me and here i am at this protest because i'm new in town and i want to be a good person and i'm trying to figure out what's right (laughs) so so thank you (laughs) you know that's a that's an unusual reaction to being roasted uh yeah i mean people just you know it's like people don't a lot of times, you know, people come up to me and will like, don't, they don't, you know, certainly on the, like there are people on Reddit, if you spend some time on the San Francisco subreddit, you'll find a lot of people who hate me, um, quite enthusiastically. Uh, and a lot of people hate me on Twitter, but, um, you know, the, like a lot of people will come up to me after the show and be like, I'm sorry, I'm in tech, you know, I'm not, I, I just want to know, you know what's the right thing or people mm-hmm. genuinely confused like wait a minute but you mean the market isn't always right <laughs> you mean surge prices isn't the best idea yeah. um so you know so yeah and i i did this joke about how much i hate the sharing economy in uber and there was somebody there who worked for lyft who was like yeah are we okay <laughs> like can we still be friends <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to be ethical in the, in the context of this thing. But none of, but none of those things were even in play when you and Kamal were first organizing these politically minded shows. Yeah. I mean, when, like the well, tech world has changed so much in the past 10 years. Right. I mean, but you know, we were like in, you know, we started the, I mean, the first laughter against the machine shows were immediately after Obama was elected. And, you know, it was, uh, there were New Year's shows. It was well, and Israel was bombing Lebanon, and we, you know, and we sort of had this principle of like, we're only going to talk about stuff that we care about. We're not going to write jokes to write jokes. We're mm-hmm. only going to talk, talk about stuff that we really care about, so that at least even if the jokes don't work, because we're figuring it out, you know, we can stand behind the point of view. Um, and so I went and wrote jokes about the Israel bombing Lebanon, and people almost walked out. People who were like good liberals, you know. Like suddenly I hit their issue wrong and they were pissed. Um, so there was an, and like all of the stuff about, you know, this, the, the madness at the time of post-racial America. And we saw how that worked out, but you know, <laughs> not quite post. Yeah. We, you know, we, Still racial we, America. we had to like be out in front of that to, you know, debunking that whole idea. You know, and I was, I did so many shows with Kamau and Hari that, like, 
where I was really aware of being the only white man on the lineup, and then later and with Kamau Hari and Janine Brito, really aware of being the only white man on the lineup, and um, uh, how for them, like whenever they go on stage, they have to relate to people's expectations of what they are. You know what I mean? Like sure. that at on some level, there's a like. I expect a black guy to say this. I don't expect a black guy to say this. And they have to think about that. And and so I just started saying, as the representative of all white people. Um, and then it became a little, little funny joke. So you recognize your white male privilege as a comedian. And know? and use it. Um, <laughs> I try to use it for good um, and not for evil. Now, knowing what I know now, that you have a wife, and twin daughters in a house in San Francisco. How was your New York City experience? Well, working on Totally Biased. I mean, because you seem like an outlier from the rest of the staff now. Because I mean, you probably were at the time. I, I, yeah, I mean, I was. Uh, you know, like for all of us, for pretty much all of us, it was our big break, like to get our first writing job. I was the only person who really sacrificed something which was to be away from my family for an extended period of time. I mean, I managed to, like, you know, come back and see them every three or four weeks, but it was horrible uh, to be away from. Like, I felt, it, yeah, I just felt ripped apart. Um, and I couldn't enjoy that the writing experience because, you know, like, my wife and I had made a decision that it was going to be the right thing to do for my career, and I was going to take a shot at it. And I was going to be haunted forever if I had the opportunity. I didn't, but and so I don't regret doing it. But I was so relieved when it was over, and I came back um, after the first season. I didn't stay through. I didn't stay till the end. And that said, and uh, you know, they came out and lived, and we got a brownstone in Park Slope for a thousand dollars for a month, um, <laughs> miraculously. Wow. Uh, so that is miraculous. Um, so and they lived with me, and the girls loved it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I also like I love being in New York. You know that my whole life is here, and my existence is here. But just as a place, I like New York better. Like as a place to be. That you know, I love the rush of a city, and I love like just the raw feed of stimulation in New York is mm -hmm. at a such more intense rate that I really I loved it. Um, so. And I love doing stand-up in New York. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we were talking about my album that I released, like, in right before I went to New York in 2012. The NATO Green Party. The NATO Green Party, uh, available from Rooftop Comedy. And, like, seeing that, the you know, the thing about New York is not just how, how many sets you can get, but how many sets with different kinds of audiences you can get. Right. And so you really get a chance to figure out how your material travels in a way that's different from most other areas that I've been to. Right. Are there different San Francisco comedy crowds, or is it... Yeah. I'm, well, in San Francisco, there's like, you know... In the city. In Yeah. Within the city, there's uh, like free, you know, there's a lot of like bar shows and one-offs, mm -hmm. you know, or random, you know, more alti venues that will attract mostly, you know, transplants in their 20s. Um, uh, you know, a mix of hipsters and techies and, pe you know, people going out on the town. Um, and then there's the clubs, you know, which are tend to be more, you know, older and include more, a more mix of tourists and that kind of stuff. Um and so, you know, I think one of the strengths of the San Francisco comedy scene is that after a certain point, like, people have, I think it, uh, Kai Branham said this to me, that he thinks San Francisco is the only place where people who come up here develop both, like, alt-comic vulnerability and comedy club jobs. Um, because, like, no nobody comes up here who doesn't work at the punchline. Um, and and Cobbs and learn how to deal with those rooms, you know, and they're great clubs, but you still, it's still a comedy club and you have to do the job. Right. And then work at the Cynic Cave below Lost Weekend Video where you right. co-produce, co co-host a show. Right. Yeah, right. Where, you know, you have like the, a funky, you know, 
forty seat subterranean lair where, you know, it, it's only comedy nerds and sensitive weirdos where you can experiment. That's not too different from New York. Uh right. But New York also. I mean, like when I was in New York, I plenty of I, basement, right? Comedy I, nerd rooms. But I also did like, you know, the you really feel the diversity in San Francisco. Like there, you know, you're there. There are never that many. You know, I mean, at this point, San Francisco's three or four percent black, so you never run that. There are never that many black people in the audience. You know, there are mm-hmm. usually more black people proportionally on stage than in the audience. Um, you know, there are. You're never doing a show as I did in New York that is where the audience is 100 percent foreign tourists. Um, <laughs> True. You know. <laughs> Where it's like, hey, what's up with it? You know, we're all we're, different. We're all Australian. Okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have to change all of my references now. Yeah, um, but you you really have your toe, your whole your whole body in the San Francisco comedy scene because you're not just performing here, producing shows. You're also talking about it on the radio and writing about it in print yep. and online. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, I mean, it's one of those things of like, if you, you know, I don't like how something's happening, I'm going to fucking fix it myself, you know? <laughs> so, uh, once upon a time, you know, the local media was paid attention to the local comedy scene. Um, you know, that they, that there was like, you know, uh, our local public television affiliate, mm-hmm. you, used to have Comedy Tonight. It was a locally produced showcase show that ran every week. Who uh, hosted that? Uh, originally Alex Bennett. And then, uh, and it was at, originally at Alex Bennett, who's now on Sirius Radio. And it was a, taped at a club called Wolfgang's, which is now Cobb's. Uh, and then later on, it was hosted, I want to say by Whoopi Goldberg. Hmm. And, uh, and it was at the Great American Music Hall. Uh, which is still there. Um, so there was a locally produced comedy TV show. Uh, one of, Live 105, one of the radio stations, had Alex Bennett had a morning show um, from 6 to 10 in the morning that had, like, you know, instead of having, like, a typical morning zoo thing, it had a live audience and local comics. Oh, wow. So, like, people like Greg Proops and Warren Thomas and David Feldman, you know, and Tom Kenny were all in the mix around that. Uh, Comedy Day in the Park drew 50,000 people. Um, and that's still an annual That's event. still an annual thing, but it's much smaller. Um, you know, Robin was around. Like, so, you know, the, there was just, and, and the press paid attention to it. And I have, like, publicly assaulted the editors of the Chronicle periodically for, and talk smack about them in print. <laughs> For like, and other media outlets for, you know, they'll do these retrospectives of like the great, you know, 80s comics, you know, of like, well, they'll do these, you know, photo slideshows of like, here's Dana Carvey in 1984 or whatever, and that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that like, you know, the current generations are as good as Dana and Robin and all those people, but if I can go out and see a show, man. But, you know, because then, because there's always a dig of like, you know, San Francisco used to have a good comedy scene. <laughs> it's like, hey, how would you know? You know, <laughs> um, and we're still like, you know, even I mean, in the last ten years, like, st- still c- launching people. You know, that uh, people are still coming through. You know, Al Madrigal and Hassan Minaj on the Daily Show, and Kamau and Moshe Kasher and Shang Wang, who was on Last Comic Standing, and right. I mean, you know, we're 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 holding our own in terms of our output of people going on to 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 do great things uh still um so you know i was frustrated about that and then klw public radio started talking to me about doing a regular segment where i would talk about the local comedy scene and the examiner gave me a column and the sf weekly gave me a blog and so you know i'm like trying to build the infrastructure of, of to support our and get people to recognize that we have a community here that's worth paying attention to. It all comes together. It all comes together. <laughs> the activism in the comedy. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like like the shop steward of comedy. 
Have you been anywhere else in the country where you see that same kind of dynamic happening? Where there are people actively promoting their scene in the uh, community and in the media? Yeah, I mean, certainly. Go, oh, certainly. That's, that's the me of Minneapolis, or that's the me of Austin, or that's the me of... Yeah, I mean, certainly Portland does that, you know, where there are comics who are writing in the Portland Mercury and the Willamette Week and stuff and promoting the local shows, and Bridgetown has built a thing around that. Um, and, they you know, and they seem to be doing a good job building a independent scene in Denver, and, um, you know, I, like, I have these other grander aspirations of things that I would like to occur someday. Uh, that I feel like would sort of get us to a different level of that, um, and I just I need other other people to decide to execute my vision. <laughs> well, I'm here to help. <laughs> get to work, Sean. <laughs> uh, what is along those lines? What's the what's the best advice you've received and latched onto to kind of keep those gears flowing? Whether it's as a comedian, as a union organizer as a husband father um yeah well man of the people a man of the people i mean the the uh this is good. what i'm about to say sounds incredibly hokey but um that's how most great advice is so uh i have done my fair time of like studying the revolutions of the world mm -hmm. and one of my favorite revolutionaries is amilcar cabral who led the revolution in Guinea-Bissau against the Portuguese until the Portuguese murdered him in 1973 or four? That's unfortunate. Before the right before the revolution succeeded, um, and the, you know the the revolution in Guinea-Bissau comes towards the end, like well into the African anti-colonial undertakings, where like there had been these revolutions against various European colonial powers that resulted in substituting African elites for European elites. And Cabral and his people recognized that that didn't really help. And so they had this approach of trying to, like, have a different method of conducting a guerrilla revolution mm -hmm. that would prepare people for self-governance um, rather than just bringing new elites. And so one of his mottos, which applies to both my activism and my comedy, is tell no lies, claim no easy victories, hide no mistakes from the masses. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's, that's how I approach all of my work. Rigorous honesty. Uh, rigorous honesty and no shortcuts. Do the work. You know what I mean? The questions that I ask when I'm writing jokes are the same as the questions that I ask when I'm, that I ask when I'm doing activism, which is what's wrong? Why is it happening? Who benefits? Who suffers? You know, like, how do we change this? You don't give this whole this revolutionary speech to a new comedian, do you? <laughs> what do you tell someone who comes up to you and they've they've heard you on the radio or they've read your columns about San Francisco life and comedy and they go, "Oh, how do Nato? How do I get into this? I want to do this." What's the first thing you tell them? Uh, I mean, the first thing that I tell them is the same advice that I got. This is the same advice that most comics got, which is do the work. Like, that, you know, I mean, I got this right when I, I mean, the person that I most remember saying this to me when I first started was Ryan Stout. And, you know, in a different way, like, uh, you know, Chris Rock said this to us a lot around Totally Biased of, like, you know, there's so much talk about like how to blow up and how to go viral and your brand and how to get discovered. Fuck all that. Be great. You know, <laughs> if you're great and unique, then you can figure the other parts out. If you're not great and unique, then you're going to hit a wall. No, even if you do figure out the other parts, do the work, be great, you know? And I mean, and be like, you know, people, I mean, like I'm a 40 year old left wing activist dad from San Francisco. Like I'm very clear that I'm not what anyone is looking for for primetime television. <laughs> so like I, you know, and that, and that I like, there's no, you know, as a parent, it's it, comedy is hard. And if I'm going to leave the house, mm -hmm. like it has to be to do something that's worthwhile. There's no, like I'm not the guy who's going to go 
and punch up a clip show. Like, why would I do that? You know, I would I would rather just be an activist. So if I'm going to do something, it's going to be it's got to be something that really that I it's still as with 2008 with the beginning of laughter against the machine with Kamau. If I'm going to leave the house, I have to care about it. So you're not in the uh, sequel to Full House, is what you're saying? I'm not in the sequel to Full House. Um, I'm not classic San Francisco sitcom. Yeah, uh, not filmed here, probably, but probably not. But uh, the house is here. Yeah, I wasn't in Monk. Um, uh, I had no connection to Fairly Legal. I was a little bit. I was a little bit salty that mm-hmm. that, I, that the looking people never talked to me because they filmed here. Um, but and you're not gender specific, so yeah. Well, you know, being a being a, a liberal activist dad in San Francisco with a wife and kids in his forties that's that's fraught with sitcom potential, right? A, 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 the pitch writes itself. A a, a union activist comedian hyphen comedian <laughs> father of twins whose wife is an anthropologist. That seems like. Uh, probably a somewhat heady, but <laughs> but like uh, you know, maybe you just have to wait until after the Obama administration, right? Because then, when we face Supreme Leader Trump, or- yeah, in the in the in the in the early days of the of President Ted Cruz, uh, uh, your your friend and mine, um, back back in my campus activist days, Ted Cruz, yeah. When uh, when we're dealing with President Ted Cruz, then I can uh, then I'll then I'll get my my insurgent sitcom, my insurgent family comedy. If we have President Ted Cruz, I will have to become an activist comedian. I will have no choice. Right. Yeah. But we're here to talk about Nina Green, and I appreciate you talking with me because I, for one, think you're great and unique, and uh, I don't want to keep you from changing the world. So. Get back to it. Okay. Uh, stay tuned. Thank you. <laughs> this episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com. For more interviews, reviews, and comedy news, become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.